Well, good morning. As Lee said, my name is actually McClellan Holt, but since third grade, when I could not pronounce that name, I have gone by Mac, and so you can also know me as Mac. Uh, Like Lee said, I'm the youth director at Tate's Creek Presbyterian in Lexington, and in two weeks, unless something radically changes, I will be ordained into the PCA, and I'm thankful to be here with you all this morning. If you would, please turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and join with me in the reading of God's Word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need, we are desperate for your presence this morning through your word. You who are our refuge, our rock, our help. Lord, you are our freedom. Would you use your word to convict those of us who are in need of your conviction? Would you use your word to comfort those of us who are in need of your comfort? We love you, Lord. We need you. In the name of the Son, amen. So today is Palm Sunday. At my home church in Lexington, my oldest son, William, who is three, uh, he will be walking down the aisle with a bunch of his young little friends, waving palm branches amidst glorious-sounding music, celebrating this Palm Sunday. Uh, To mirror what Jesus rode into Jerusalem amidst on this day. You see, the Jewish people, they had this intense longing for freedom. They had expectations that their God was going to act, bringing them a Messiah, a king who would lead them into a revolutionary change, a great separation from the Gentiles that they both lived among and who ruled over them. They were longing for freedom, but their expectations of what that freedom was going to look like made them totally miss who Christ was 
and what he came to do. And so when Jesus did not meet those expectations, they turned against him. As you will look at later this week, they turned against him, arresting him, calling for him to be crucified. But all of this, from his entry amongst their celebration to his submitting to betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, was meant to accomplish their freedom. So on this Palm Sunday, when we look back to the, at the beginning of Holy Week, when Jesus would do all that was required to accomplish your freedom, our freedom, it would do us well to turn to one of the fullest explanations of our freedom that the Apostle Paul lays out in our text. Look at those opening words. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our freedom, purchased with the crimson currency of Christ's blood, is something that is so easy to turn from and lose. This freedom is something we so often hear about, but I wonder if we actually walk in and enjoy it as we are meant to. Instead, maybe we hear so often about freedom, how abundant and full a life in Christ is supposed to be, but inside we feel dry, empty, distant, as our experience of that freedom does not line up with the descriptions of it. Paul writes to people like us. He knows that these young Christians in Galatia were in a very real and present danger from turning from their freedom in Christ. And we too are in constant danger of turning from that freedom if we have not already turned from it this morning. There is a very real threat to all of us that we might know Christ, we might know his gospel, much as the Galatians did, and yet not live in and walk in the freedom that he purchased for us. And Paul, in our text, wants you to grip at the center of your being that in Christ is freedom, so cling tight to him. In Christ is freedom, so cling tight to him. There is an incredible life of freedom that is yours to enjoy, and Paul wants you to soak in it in our text this morning. And so, Paul goes to great lengths to identify a great rival to freedom, the true source of your freedom, and what a life living in that freedom will look like. And those will be our points this morning as we follow Paul. The rival of freedom, the root of freedom, and the result of freedom. So let's look first to this great rival of freedom. After his opening line, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Paul identifies this great rival of freedom that would seek to hang a heavy harness of slavery on your shoulders. And Paul is fired up. You can picture him up till this point. He's been dictating the letter, but he jumps up from his little couch and he runs over, grabs the stylus, grabs the pen, and pens this bit himself. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, you will, verse 3, be obligated to keep the whole law. You will be severed from Christ. You will have fallen away from Christ, verse 4. And now, this is very important. He is not saying that they are going to lose their salvation, but that they can lose their freedom. 
Paul is writing to people who are already believers. This is family talk. According to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Galatians had believed the message of Christ crucified. They had received the Holy Spirit. They had made a public profession of faith, showing in some sense that they knew their need of Christ's sacrifice and righteousness. They had accepted Christ as their justification before God. So if we take all that into account, according to Paul, it is very possible that you can know that salvation is through Christ and yet still live in slavery. The Galatians were being taught that they needed to accept circumcision, this ritual marking of a man to identify them as part of God's people, something that goes all the way back to their forefather Abraham. What they were hearing was a distorted or an altered gospel that according to chapter 1, verse 7, was telling the Galatians, great, you've been saved by Christ. Now you need to accept circumcision in order to fully be part of God's people, in order to fully be accepted by him. Now it would be very easy for us to miss the reality of what's going on in these verses because I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think anyone here uh, is being told that they now need to go and be circumcised. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that. So we might miss what's going on. So let's make it very simple. What the Galatians were being told was that to fully be embraced by God after accepting Christ, they now needed to do something. They were being told that you can be brought into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, but now you need to relate to that God through your morality through your law-keeping, through your obedience. And Paul rails against this rival of freedom. In verse 7, he moves to this illustration of a runner who is running well and then is cut off. And if you've ever been to a track meet or seen a track meet before, you can picture this happening. The best runner in the field can get out, out of the blocks and be running, but as the other runners move in, someone can cut in front of them And they can quickly become boxed in by all the other runners. And so they are not able to run as they were meant. And then he speaks of a bit of leaven, a bit of of yeast, that works its way through an entire lump of dough. Taking both of these illustrations from Paul uh, into account, I can't help but think of last summer's Tour de France, uh, the the bicycle race, when something utterly absurd happened. Uh, There was a, a young woman who had a cardboard sign that said, go grandmother and grandpa. And she had positioned herself right off the road so that the cameras would see this this sweet sign and her grandparents would see uh, her, see the sign. It would be sweet. Uh, But all these riders, these cyclists, they're packed in so tightly together and they're coming down the road and that little cardboard sign, it clips one of the cyclists and he goes down. But because they're so packed tight, Every other rider beside him and behind him goes down as well. And it is complete and total cycling carnage. One little thing leading to disaster. And in this same way, just a hint, just an attitude or teaching that by our obedience, we can help our standing with God, make him love us more, make ourselves more acceptable to him, And that poison will work its way through the entirety of your life and through the life of your community. And it will prove disastrous.
Paul knows that the great rival to your freedom is this. That once you accept Christ Jesus as your salvation, as your justification, your being made right with God, it is now supremely tempting to think that you now relate to him based on your obedience. This great rival is called legalism. Now you might hear legalism, and you may be familiar with this word, and what comes to mind might be a formal doctrine of being saved by your works. And while that's true, legalism is much more than that. See, it's a, it's a matrix, it's a web of beliefs and attitudes and feelings about who God is and how we relate to him. It's a temperament of the heart that although in our heads knows that you are made right with God only by Christ, you now relate to him based on your performance. And this rival will destroy your freedom in Christ. Maybe it is destroying your freedom this morning. Maybe you have turned from the freedom that Christ has set you free for. Some heart-level questions to help you diagnose if this is the case would be something like the following. Do you think that God finds you more acceptable, attractive, or that he simply likes you more based on how well you are obeying him? based on how well you are holding the spiritual disciplines, based on your church attendance, based on whatever it is that you do, do you think that he finds you more attractive, that he likes you more? Do you think that you owe God a great debt because he has redeemed you, saved you at the cost of his precious son's life, and now somehow you can settle that debt? If so, then the great rival to your freedom has indeed asserted itself, telling you that your performance can earn you something from the Father. And Paul says to this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. Neither your law-keeping or your e-religion count for anything. Period. Why? That is an audacious claim. Why can Paul say this? Let's look there now. We've seen the great rival to your freedom, and now Paul is going to show us the beautiful root of your freedom. Now there are two words in the midst of all these other verses, and they can get lost, but they stand at the heart of everything for Paul. Verse 6, for in Christ... In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. In Christ. We so often hear Christians described as believers, disciples, followers, Christians. These labels that put an emphasis on some quality in us, some decision you have made, some practice, some group that you identify with. But Paul's overwhelming designator of a Christian, a word that he does not use, is simply someone who is in Christ. Over and over again throughout all of his writings, Paul speaks of being in Christ, being united to Christ. For Paul, those two words, in Christ, they lie at the center of the gospel message and what it means to be and experience life as a Christian. So if something is this important to Paul, we probably better have a good understanding of what this means. What does it mean to be in Christ? What is union with Christ? Very simply, being in Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. 
We can look at Galatians 2, 20-21, and Paul explains it. And listen closely to what Paul says here. Because if you claim Christ this morning, all that he says of you is true. I have been crucified with Christ. Have been. This verb is in the present perfect, meaning it's something that happened in the past, and yet it has continuing effects. When Christ died... Paul now shares in that crucifixion. When Christ died, you now share in that crucifixion. It is no longer I who live. As one author puts it, the the person I was before Christ is no longer the person I am. The Christian life is not a life of self-improvement. We're talking about totally new selves, totally new creations. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, every other religion has some great teacher who lives on in the life of their followers by their teachings. So long as those teachings are talked about and followed, that teacher in some way lives on in the life of their followers. Buddha, for example, lives on in the life of his followers as people continue to talk about and adhere to his teachings. Now, I think we can slip into thinking that Christ is the same way. But Paul is saying that Christ is alive today, radically affecting his followers beyond his teaching, beyond his example. Rather, that Christ is in you. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he tells them, where I am going, you cannot come. This would be truly shattering news for men who have given everything to follow that Jesus. And then he says, I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. You can't come with me. But then he tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So according to Jesus, the only thing better than physically walking with him, watching him perform miracles, eating with him, would be that he would dwell inside of you. And if you are a believer, then Christ literally this morning dwells within you. Paul asks, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The temple is so important to Paul. It has this special place of being God's unique place of his presence. That although he is everywhere, that is a place that he will uniquely commune with and be with his people. And Paul says, now you are that temple. He lives inside of you. This is why St. Augustine can say, God is more near to me than I am to myself. Paul moves on. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now faith is that God-given gift of how you enjoy your union with Christ, how you take hold of God's having taken hold of you. You are in Christ, enjoying the benefits of his life, his death, his resurrection, Namely, that he has justified you, he has made you right with God by his perfect life and by his sacrificial death. He has your perfect holiness already accomplished, and now he's working it out in you, and your eternal home is with you. This is why Paul can have the audacity to say that your circumcision and your uncircumcision don't count, because your righteousness is already perfectly complete, because you are in Christ. And he is in you. You are in his perfect obedience. You are in Christ's perfect righteousness. And Christ is now in you, making your heart and your life 
his dwelling place on this earth. Now, this is a delightful thing. One of my heroes, Sinclair Ferguson, says that when he heard this truth, that Christ Jesus dwells inside of him. He was 14 years old, and he skipped all the way home. But it is really difficult to wrap our heads around, is it not? So, to explain union with Christ, this incredible mystery, uh, unfortunately, I think it's a bit like explaining a joke. When you do so, you lose some of its power. But we're going to offer an explanation anyway, an illustration of this. That you are in Christ is a bit like my young son, William, who loves to wear my t-shirts. Let me explain. Uh, I ran last year in April, a year ago, I ran uh, the Derby City Marathon in Louisville. And my son wanted to run it so badly. But, you know, he's three years old, he's about this tall, and it's 26 miles, so that was not going to happen. Uh, But I finished the race, and I get back to our house. And you know those shirts that they give out to people who run road races, okay? So I, I have one of those shirts, and young William, he's so excited about my having run this race. And so I give him that shirt, and he puts the shirt on. And you know the sleeves, they're hanging down past his hands, and then the hem of it is dragging around on the ground, but he's obsessed with it. He wears it around our house, the next morning wakes up, puts it back on, wears it around our neighborhood. I'm sure my neighbors were wondering, why can you not buy your son clothing that fits him? He loved it. It's his race shirt. It's so big on him, but he is fully clothed in it, is he not? Now, over the next several years, so long as that shirt holds up and is not tattered to shreds, he will now grow up into a shirt that already fits him. He will grow up into something that he is already clothed in. The fact that you are in Christ is a bit like that shirt on my son. Everything that Christ has done, everything that Christ is, you now wear. You are clothed in it. His obedience, his righteousness, his perfection, his glorified life in heaven, that is all yours now and you are fully clothed in it. You just get to spend the rest of your life growing up into it. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, you are to grow up into the mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that you may no longer be children. You are to grow up in every way into Christ. You are already in him objectively. That cannot change. That shirt is not subject to being removed. You get the gift of growing up into it every day, experientially, subjectively, for the rest of your life. This is why Paul says, through the Spirit who lives in you, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's not speaking about hope like we speak about hope. I hope the Reds might be good this year, right? Some wish that we don't know if it will be fulfilled. Paul speaks of a confident, sure thing, already guaranteed, that we are now basing everything else on. The confident guarantee that in time we will experience all that we have in Christ. That is why he is able to say, For in Christ, neither your circumcision nor your uncircumcision count for anything. If you are in Christ, circumcision, your religious duties, your law keeping, it does not count. It doesn't help you before God. God sees you in Christ. And your uncircumcision, your immorality, your paganism, it doesn't count. You are in Christ. That is the root of your freedom, your union with Christ. That you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And if you are not in Christ, wouldn't you love for this to be true of you? For this to be your identity? 
To be able to be freed from that crushing rat race of building and maintaining an identity that is as fickle as your successes and failures. In Christ, God says of you, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Own that. Be clothed in that. Give yourself to Christ who has given himself for you. Now let's close by looking at the result of this freedom or how we now live that freedom out. The result of freedom. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. See, Paul knows that the flesh we carry is still so sinful and will hear all of those wonderful truths that we just talked about. That your uncircumcision and your circumcision, they do not count. We hear that and we run to thinking, well, this is licensed to do whatever I want. I'm wearing the clothing of Christ. I'm free to do as I wish. But this is just another distortion of the legalism we already talked about. It's just another twisted view of God and his law that sees God's law as something separated from his goodness, his graciousness, and his love towards you. It sees God's law not as something big and beautiful, but as something that hinders your freedom. But indulging your lusts, your gossip, something on the internet, the bottle, whatever it is, that is not freedom, that's another form of slavery. Rather, through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now those words should sound very familiar because Paul is quoting our Lord and Savior Jesus. When Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is calling us to holiness. A life of loving God and loving others. But here's the key point. We no longer pursue holiness to make God accept us, to approve of us, or even simply to like us more. No, you are called to pursue holiness because this is who you already are in Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are objectively and perfectly holy and righteous before God. And if Christ is in you, then holiness is what his spirit is now working out in you. Restoring your heart and your will and your being to love God and love neighbor. To rebuild in you what you were created for. My wife Jess and I, we bought our first home two summers ago. And this house legitimately should have its own HGTV special. Uh, it was a wreck when we bought it. At one time, it had been a beautiful home, but through years of neglect and abandonment, this thing was falling apart. And as soon as we signed the papers and had them filed, we were objectively the owners of that house. Now, of course, the bank was the majority owner, but we were objectively the owner of that house. So we moved in. And upon moving in, you would see us, uh, Jess, my wife, in the yard removing all the shrubs in front of the house and tearing out old vines that were growing up over the side under the roof. And I was inside tearing down cabinets and ripping out layers and layers and layers of flooring and then messing with plumbing, things I never should have been into. What were we doing? We were taking what was already ours objectively and we were making it our own by restoring it back to its beauty. And this is what Christ is now doing in you and in me by his spirit who lives within us. His spirit is ripping out the old fixtures of self-obsession in the flesh, convicting us of sin in the ways that we fail to love him and love our neighbor. 
And he is planting and growing and working out a new love for God. And his obeying uh, the commandments as a way of loving our neighbor. Simply, he is restoring us back to what we were created for. A life of glorifying and enjoying our God. This is your new identity, objectively. We are just learning it anew. Learning what it looks like to live it out. Learning how to be who we already are. And this is what freedom is. Living out the identity of who we already are. So very practically, give yourself to the behaviors and the disciplines of loving God and serving others. Not to earn God's acceptance, not to earn his approval, not to earn him liking you more in some way. That's slavery. Live it out because it's who you already are. Live out who you already are in Christ. The way of freedom is becoming who you are. We're so tempted to relate to God based on our performance. Do not give in to this. God views you with the same affection that he does his own son. He views you as having the righteousness of his son. You are in Christ. Live into your true identity. When I picture that call of living into who you already are, I cannot help but think of a scene from a movie called Blood Diamond. There's this man named Solomon. Solomon is helping uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's the main character. He's helping Leonardo on his mission. And Solomon had lost his son Dia a long time before. See, Dia had been separated from his father and had been enslaved in a child army by a warlord. Years later, his father comes across him. His father is bent over, looking for something in the water, in this stream, and the son appears from the bushes. He comes across his dad for the first time in years. In the scene, you see young Dia with a gun pointed at his father's head. He has no idea who his father is from years of enslavement and brainwashing. And his father stares down the barrel of this gun and he says this, Dia, what are you doing? You are of the Proud Monday tribe. You are a good boy. You love soccer and school and your mother loves you so much. She waits back home for you making plantains and palm oil stew with your sister. And you're her baby. The cows wait for you. And Barkuru, the wild dog who knows no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And the more that the father Solomon speaks, the more as these words land on his young son Dia, the tears begin to flow as young Dia remembers who he truly is. And in doing so, is freed from his slavery. If you are in Christ, let this be true of you. Remember your identity in Christ and give yourself to a life of living it out. As we go into this holy week, let your imagination and your mind be captured by all that Christ Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem proclaiming freedom, look at all that he did in order to accomplish your freedom. It is secured. As surely as Christ Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead 2,000 some years ago, it is objectively sure of you. Now give yourself over to a life of living it out, for in this is freedom. Amen. Father, we are humbled and we are struck by the great lengths that you went to to redeem and free a people for yourself. 
Lord God, would you please free us from all that would hinder us from enjoying true freedom in your Son? Would you free us from the legalism that so easily captures our hearts? Would you free us from a life of licentiousness, from thinking that now that we are free, we can run to the things of this world? Lord, capture our hearts and our imaginations this week with your great love demonstrated in your Son that we might be free. All of this we ask in the name of your Son. Amen.